She grabbed my hand and she said, bless your heart. <laughs> and whenever you hear that in the South, you know something's coming. <laughs> bless your heart. You did a great job, but I came to hear the real Chuck Colson. <laughs> and then the second thing that I remember was the page of feedback that I got from Steve Brown. I don't ever remember everything that he said, but there was this one very pointed line. And he said, don't try to finish the sermon in your closing prayer. He said, it's a bad habit of preachers. And I listened back to the sermon. It was exactly what I did. I got into the closing prayer and remembered everything that I had forgotten to say. And so I was preaching all another points and we were going on and I was closing off that sermon with some gusto. And honestly, when you arrive at Hebrews 13, you can feel somewhat of the same tension and dynamic. On my count, there are at least 15 commands in this final chapter. 15 commands, exhortations of things that the apostle or whoever wrote this letter or whoever preached it to this congregation that was struggling in their faith, 15 exhortations, things they were to do. He throws the kitchen sink at them. It can feel like it's just everything piled up in the end, almost on rapid fire, that they were supposed to do. And is this just a bad example of a closing prayer? Everything that's piled up here. What exactly are we to make of it? Or perhaps in the structure of this, where we have the exhortations and the commands piled up at the end, is there some rhyme or reason to the biblical logic? Because it's not just the book of Hebrews. We find this throughout the scriptures, where we have statements of what God is, has done for us in Jesus Christ, and then it's followed by exhortations and commands or imperatives. And yes, in this structure, there is something at the heart of Christian piety, of Christian living before God. Because you see, what's crucial for us to understand about the gospel is that who we are in Christ always precedes what we are to do for Christ. And that's the logic of the epistle to the Hebrews. That the statement of who we are in Christ, because of what Christ has done for us as the high priest, the high priest who entered into the presence of God, made atonement for sins that no one else was qualified to make. That this is who we are. That we have a new name in front of God because in and through Jesus Christ we have received a forgiveness and a righteousness that we can never have on our own. And so what God has done always comes first and then follows what is to be done. And to keep that logic and that order and that priority in the church's ministries is essential. It's so essential because if it's lost, everything can be turned upside down. Because we've seen as we've read through Paul's epistles on the topic of good works is that our good works do not purchase grace. We have no ability to make God our debtor, that somehow he would owe us something. But we've also seen that works are important, but by them we can never bind God to somehow pay us back. If we believe we can do so, then no matter how well-intentioned or religious our effort may be, no matter how much Christianese or Bible we may attach to it, 
We have completely severed ourselves from the grace of God. That we don't do meritorious things to gain God's favor. That's his gift to us. In Hebrews 10.26, it's said very clearly, Christ has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. One sacrifice, once for all, for sin. He alone, toned, he alone atones for us and makes us right with God, reconciling us to him. But then we see something interesting. Because this high priest who has made atonement for us, he then also says that he makes us priest in the service of the living God. That now we can turn from dead works and we are to render sacrifices to God. And this is what we find in Hebrews 13. And what's so important for us as we consider the role of good works in the Christian life is to consider what our priestly service of God. Now, when I say priestly service, this doesn't apply to the clergy. It doesn't apply to, as one of my friends would say, the super Christians. It applies to all those who have been set apart and sanctified by the blood of Jesus Christ. That is, all those for whom Jesus has died and believed and trust in him, that we as a company are the priest of God. And we are commissioned and called by God to now make sacrifice unto him. And in Hebrews 13, we find that sacrifice being developed in two ways. Let's look at each of them. First, in verse 15, we see that we are to offer the sacrifice of praise. Through him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. And there are several ways today that we struggle with this pretty basic command. That what God calls us to is to offer a sacrifice of praise to him. In chapter 10 and verse 25, we learn that we are not to forsake the gathering together. And all of this appears to be referring to the Christian habit from the earliest days of the church of gathering on the Lord's Day on Sunday for worship. And that some of these early Christians were prone to be shy about that gathering, perhaps because it led to persecution and suffering on their behalf. But God clearly exhorts us not to forsake that habit, that we are to offer a sacrifice of praise to God. And we can struggle with taking that priority seriously. It's one of the first ways that we stumble. We struggle with taking the priority seriously for various reasons. Our culture puts many different obligations in front of us, things that pull at our time. There are entertainments and pastimes and pleasures that pull us in various ways. There's also some bad associations. Some people went to church perhaps weekly, but it never meant anything to them. It was just a ceremonial observance, and they found it to be dead. And so they associate the idea of discipline with just endless drudgery. But friends, we have to put all those things aside. We have to press back against all the distractions that can pull us in so many different ways. And we have to press back against perhaps bad experiences. And what we want to hear clearly is the call and the command of God that we are to offer a sacrifice of praise. 
And that Lord's Day by Lord's Day, as we gather with his people to come in joyful company to give thanks to him for what he's done in Jesus Christ, that the high priest has done the unthinkable, that he solved the problem that only he can solve. And so we need to clear space to hear the simple command, to not overcomplicate it, and to put ourselves in the presence and the company of God's people to give thanks. Second way that we struggle with this is we struggle just to fulfill the demands of it. To offer a sacrifice of praise is not simply an external ceremonial observance. That we simply can't get by with showing up. We can't get by with going through the motions, standing, sit, uh, standing, sitting, pretending to sing, mouthing the prayers. That we can go through all the motions and we haven't exactly engaged what God's goal is in worship. The apostle captures this in the second half of verse 15 as he explains what this sacrifice of praise to God is. He says, that is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. This is an odd quotation that actually comes from the prophet Hosea in chapter 14 and verse 2. And there, this language is put on the lips of the worshiper who has been forgiven by God. That is the fruit of lips, the one who returns to God to give thanks to him for what has been accomplished on their behalf, the gift that God gives. And so, friends, to fulfill the demand of worship means that we have to enter into this dynamic where we actually are moved and give thanks, where we receive in faith what God has freely done for us in Jesus. Not simply going through motions and something being rote, but actually encountering God and hearing his word and responding to him. And this, of course, is what we attempt to bring to life week by week as we gather for worship. We often use the language of a sacrifice of praise. And then we give multiple opportunities throughout the service where we as a congregation are summoned by God and have opportunity to respond to him. And then we confess our sins. And then we sing hymns celebrating this great forgiveness and this grace that is undeserved. This is the shape of Christian liturgy because it's designed to help you in this basic call. It's meant to be repetitive because we are continually, Hebrews 15, verse 15 says, continually offer a sacrifice of praise to God. And so the liturgy is repetitive so that we continually offer this sacrifice of praise, lifting it up before God and fulfilling what he requires of us, not only in our person and the external part, but in our heart with thanksgiving. Third piece that we struggle with here is that we struggle with remaining centered on Christ. You'll notice that the verse begins in an odd way with a preposition, through him. In the original, is perhaps even more clunky. But what happens through this odd emphasis is that something is being highlighted for us about how we worship and how worship is to work. That worship is not the work of a human being, 
Then worship is not the work of a company of, of humans gathered together to give thanks to God, but rather worship is the work of our Lord Jesus as we offer through him to God a sacrifice of praise. And so worship is to be incredibly concentrated and centered upon Christ, that he is everything to the worship event. And so the church has no permission to take its eyes and put them on anything else Though there are many good things that the church can give itself to, that at the heart and the center of our worship, it is to be focused on him. That all of our offering of praise to God goes through Christ. He mediates that. That our listening, our praying, our singing, our baptizing, our communion, it is all focused through him. And people sometimes ask the question, Chuck, what is the difference between a service that seems to have life and a service that just seems to be good? What's what's that existential difference? And I believe here we find at least part of the answer. That when a service takes up a life where a congregation is bound together in thanksgiving and praise, it's when we take up this promise through him and we receive all that he has in front of us, and we believe and trust that he is the one who's mediating before God on our behalf, and our worship is acceptable to God in him. When we find ourselves believing and trusting, not just in a formal doctrinal way, but under the power and influence of the Holy Spirit, applying and appropriating all of that, that's when worship becomes alive. It's when we trust that Jesus Christ truly opens up the way for us that we can draw near with confidence. This is how in the dynamic of offering a sacrifice of praise to God. And so joyfully receive all that God has done. And inside of that dynamic, then offer your praise through that same Jesus Christ. Several years ago, I was speaking with two pastors who were simultaneously planting churches. Both of them knew of my own interest in liturgical studies, and so they called to ask several questions about the organization of their worship services. The first pastor asked several questions and said, yes, well, I like your outline, and I'm concerned that our church get this right. We're going to do it by the book. And he then walked through his outline of the service, and it was very detailed, and it was ornate, and it had some real beauty to it. And at the end of the conversation, it was impossible not to ask, hey, where is your confidence lying that you're going to lead your congregation into the presence of God? And it was clear that his confidence was relying upon the liturgy that he had structured there. And friends, this misunderstands the dynamic of worship. That the liturgy can be a helpful aid towards getting there, but the liturgy doesn't guarantee it. That the liturgy can't secure faith in the heart of the people. That they're beholding the Lamb at the right hand of God who mediates for them and intercedes on their behalf. That is the dynamic of worship. Second pastor who called He was interested in liturgical worship and learning some things, and so he asked for bulletins. And then as we began discussing over the phone ideas for worship, 
He said, yes, well, I find that, um, that liturgy is just cool, and I like it, and I think it'll attract the kind of people that I want to reach in my church. And this, too, for very different reasons, misunderstands the dynamic of worship. That we, do, don't, we don't do things just to be relevant that the focus of our worship is to get to Jesus Christ, to place our faith in him. And whatever liturgical impulses or pieces we have, it is to produce this faith. It is to press us in that direction, that we behold him, that we believe in him, that we lay hold of him in faith and receive all that he so freely gives. This is how we offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving and praise. But the apostle then presses further in verse 16, because not only is the sacrifice that we offer to be one of praise, but also we see that we're to offer the sacrifice of good deeds. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. The rhythm of this is perhaps familiar, it follows Jesus' basic summary of the Christian life, that we are to love God and to love our neighbor. And that sacrifices are to be offered to God as we serve those around us in love and compassion and in meeting needs. There are two things that we need to note about these sacrifices. First, our love, good deeds, and compassion are a reflection of the once-for-all offering of Jesus Christ. This epistle is taken up with the idea of Jesus being a once-for-all sacrifice. If you read through the pages of it this afternoon, you'll find the repetition, particularly in chapters 9 and 10. And then because the high priest has consecrated us and because he has set us apart, we are called as lowercase p priest into his service. And part of that service is to reflect the way that we've been served by him. And so you find examples of it in chapter 13. In verse 1 through 5, you find these examples of generosity. You find examples of hospitality. You find examples of compassion. That these are the way the church is to take up the sacrifice of Christ, and we are to embody it in the lives of our community. Serving those among us and serving those outside of us. Giving ourselves to them freely. And we're to reflect and meditate upon that great love of God that's freely entered into our lives. It wasn't our idea. It initiated to us. And as we gain a deeper and greater appreciation for that love, it moves us from passive observance into activity into engagement, into caring for the needs of others, in addressing needs, in asking what we can do as a sacrifice and service of God. This is the first thing about the sacrifice of good deeds. Second is that our love, good deeds, and compassion are only acceptable to God in Christ. And this is perhaps one of the most profound things of these two very short verses. That our worship is acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And our good deeds are acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. You see, many people stumble at this 
part of the Christian life. They look at their hearts, their motivations, they look at their goals, they look at the standards they use, and they say it's completely impossible. As I said a moment ago, they think to themselves that they're not super Christians. And so rather than try to engage, they simply find themselves paralyzed, and they don't take up the call to obedience at all. They do their best. They hang around church. But friends, the thing is, our goals, our motivations, our standards will never be perfectly pleasing to God. Your good works on this side of the story will always be mediated and brought to God through your great high priest, Jesus Christ. And so when you find that your motivations are sordid and polluted with sin, when you find that you serve someone and you weren't completely in it, when you find that you struggled to care for someone but you attempted to do your best, you know that that was offered to God through Jesus Christ, that he sanctifies that, he cleanses that, he presents it to God, that he's the one hope of this sacrifice being pleasing. And we can freely give it to him. And so these two sacrifices for the priest of the living God, they are coordinated by the great high priest, Jesus Christ. He calls and commands us to offer a sacrifice of praise and the sacrifice of good deeds. Find in him everything that you need and offer those two sacrifices through him. Let's pray. Our Father, we do recognize the great fact of your love for us that exceeds all understanding that you have sent our Lord Jesus Christ to identify with us and to die on our behalf, and that he now intercedes for us. And our worship this morning comes to you through him. And we ask that you would ever increase our good deeds and that they also rise up to you through him. And may we see the great centrality of Jesus Christ for all that we do in our worship and in our obedience. Help us where we're weak and compel us by your great love. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.